Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Rob Klenner, Senior Energy Transition and Strategy Leader at the Baker Hughes Energy Innovation Center. So, Rob, you are here today in Dallas for the Heart Energy ESG Conference and will be speaking later today in a session titled The Edge, How Technology is Responding to ESG Demands. I want to dig into this, the idea of edge computing, ESG, energy transition, and how you and your team fit into all of it. So thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please, Rob, share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Baker Hughes and the group that you work in specifically. Yeah, so background, I'm a geologist and wanted to touch on, this has been 12 years in the making uh, (laughs) since we met down here in Dallas, actually at the SMU Geothermal Conference when we were both graduate students. And um, yeah, it's it's exciting just to be, uh, I guess, at the forefront again of energy transition and the geothermal topics. our center uh, in Oklahoma City, uh, we're, we're a part of a global um, research and innovation center. So we work broadly across Baker Hughes. Uh, anything that, that touches digital and digital transformation for the company, and this is uh, how we enhance our products, um, really making uh, us work smarter and not harder. Uh, and so that really goes around the optimization side of things and how we're more productive. Um, and how that really impacts our our carbon footprint, but also our customers. And then we're also at the forefront of the energy transition. So we have teams focused on carbon capture-based technologies, geothermal-based technologies. Um, Interesting enough, we even have batteries now that we're exploring within our facility um, uh, with a company called Primus Power and a flow battery uh, that we have at at our site right now. Um, and then really around edge and automation. So there, we have a, a full team dedicated on edge and automation. So I, I get to work across with all the different teams um, and get to go out externally too and see what the, the moving technologies are and how do we start to collaborate with, uh, with different people in these industries. Yeah, that's very exciting. Thank you for that introduction. And it, it's fun to hear all of the aspects that a large company like Baker Hughes is working on and really the specifics of the innovation side of it and looking at not only today and innovating and making and optimizing oil and gas production, but then as you say, looking into the energy transition and the energy future and thinking about even things like batteries that I would I would never have thought would be something that Baker Hughes would work on. And, and it is also fun to, to think about, we, we did meet 12 years ago in geothermal and and through 
through our careers different paths but ultimately we are we are coming back together here on this podcast and also just in general with with energy with geothermal with optimization with all of these different ideas so with with that idea i want to jump into into more details kind of walk through different case studies i think would be the best way to think about the different different avenues that the energy innovation center at baker hughes works on one of the one of the ones that that first caught my eye was from last september the the title of it was vine energy deploys baker hughes advanced analytics to enhance gas production and curtail methane emissions this was released back in september of 2021 can we Talk about that a little bit. Can you go through that as an example of an ESG problem or a, a production problem that you were working on solving and how that is is innovating and driving us to the, the energy future? Yeah, this was a, an interesting problem. It all started out around production optimization. So the customer had um, a large group of wells in Haynesville where they put these wells on a uh, intermittent cycle of uh, shutting the well that wells in, building up pressure, producing them back. Um, and, and there's a sophisticated process that's already in place for these. So they have existing controllers on site. These existing controllers can be programmed, but it's really a, a human kind of guessing, saying, hey, I think this is the optimal settings. Um, let's kind of set this across the field and, and you know, we'll, we'll go with, uh, with what we program based off of our, our knowledge. Um, what, what we're able to do is uh, the customer's like, you know, the, we, we feel this can be a little bit more sophisticated, and that's where AI and machine learning came uh, into play here. And so what we ended up doing was uh, taking an industrial computer, and we could plug that into the controller and now deploy algorithms at the site. So a lot of people are, um, they know about cloud computing, uh, but but there's some issues there of how you're moving and transferring data. This allows you to localize the analytics right on site. And so what we did was almost like an Amazon type of approach where you go into Amazon and you start buying things and they learn your behavior. We're, we're doing that in a similar sense to each individual well. Um, so when we, we drop the, the, uh, the edge computer at, at site, we develop analytics. The analytics are uh, um, learning the behavior. We're trying different settings, seeing how the well responds. And, uh, you know, we, we were hoping for uh, a significant improvement on production. Uh, what, what happened was, hey, we only got 4 to 5% improvement on production, but what we learned was almost a side effect. It's like we reduced the liquid loading events in some wells significantly. Um, and those who are unfamiliar, or unfamiliar with liquid loading, uh, this is a, uh, one of the leading causes of, of emissions when you're, when you're unloading the liquids in the well bore. Um, which causes some some venting to the atmosphere to get that well flowing again. Um, but by having the sophistication, we were able to see when these loading events were were occurring, what was causing them, um, and so the AIML could could respond fairly quickly and prevent this from happening. So it was a it was a side effect, but what we learned was that was a uh, a more desirable outcome than the actual production optimization itself. So this liquid loading that's it's just fascinating to think about 
liquid loading to me sounds like a it would be a a common problem in in gas fields is this a more from mature wells or is this kind of a liquid loading is a problem kind of across the board yeah so these were were late life wells pressures depleted um and so as that pressure is depleted you're starting to get liquids building up um for people not familiar with uh, downhole reservoir geology um you're not just producing gas there there's other um uh, you have gas oil water everything's kind of coming into the well bore and so if you think about it, the, the water as it builds up, it starts to block the gas from flowing all the way back up to surface. Um, and so it, 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 it is a common problem. Um, there's, there's other strategies that you can take to it as well um, by other uh, production techniques. But uh, I think the unique case here was seeing how digital could really just enable um, you know, kind of a, a basic uh, production practice and make it more sophisticated and, and, and allow a very low cost type solution by um, just optimizing the process. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make that you're optimizing the process. So you're making these late life wells ultimately more, slightly more productive. You said 5%, but I think the, the key there that I see is, is more profitable because you can do a low cost solution to make these wells work better. And, and as we, as we go towards decarbonization and net zero goals and, and ESG goals for individual companies, it's almost like that is a higher value because of the, the amount of emissions that were being released could have ultimately in, in a future where there's a carbon tax or an emission tax that could end up being what makes those wells no longer profitable. Whereas here you've now extended that life in two different ways. Yeah. And it's not even just extending the, the life of these wells. Um, another benefit out of this was, um, especially, especially with, uh, you know, the, the pandemic and, and the, the market turnover and people and jobs, uh, we're, it seems that we're running more on skeleton crews and we're trying mm-hmm. to get, get more people. Uh, but this actually allowed their people to be more focused on um, uh, may, maybe I'd say more necessary problems, right? So this is a, this is a problem that you don't want to have. Um, and so the, their field guys actually uh, benefited from this as well, you know, moving around the field, making less frequent trips. Um, so when this does happen, the, the well locks up um, and you have to put it on a, on a maintenance type schedule too to, to send, send folks around. So um, beyond just the, the benefits there, it's also your human capital and how you're uh, uh, moving about the field and, and focusing on better things as well. Yeah, I like that. And I think that's a, a good way to look at it for, for the overall view of of energy innovation and for all the other aspects that you work in so jumping around a little bit what are some other examples of of a recent project that you've done at the energy innovation center yeah so our our center is uh we're we're fairly adaptable i think the the good way i explained it to, to someone was uh we're, we're kind of like your your crazy uncle at times that told you about Bitcoin maybe uh, five, six, seven years ago, and nobody wanted to believe him on certain things. So, so we get to dream big a little bit about uh, our, our uh, um, 
the technology that's out there, um, emerging technologies. Um, one, one good example that we're looking at right now is uh, when we built our facility back in 2016, we actually drilled wells in our, in our facility um, and, uh, and there, we could test ESPs or equipment down them and they can go to different high temperatures. Uh, but with the emerging opportunity in geothermal, um, advanced geothermal systems, we, we see a, um, a need and an ability to repurpose our wells to have controlled environments. We could, we could create a, a, a geothermal well at our facility um, and this could give us all sorts of opportunities to test different equipment down in the, the well itself, uh, look at different working fluids. Um, and with our recent investment in uh, uh, green fire energy, uh, we see a, a good opportunity here to, to explore, you know, how do, how, do we take the, how do we take our test well? What could be the future for oil and gas wells? Kind of going back to, to where we were uh, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, how do we take these technologies and uh, repurpose oil and gas wells? And that, that's a common thing that uh, our customers are looking into because, again, going back to, to the edge and automation side, we're trying to extend the life of these wells. Uh, digital is a, a key enabler on the, the, current, um, you know, the current production stream is gas and oil. Uh, but we know that we can also extend the life of these wells with geothermal. So it's really about longevity of, of our customers' assets. Um, and then other things that we're looking at, uh, and, and again, people don't know a lot about Baker Hughes. When they think of Baker Hughes, they think drilling and oil field services. But uh, when we merged with uh, GE Oil and Gas uh, back in 2017, there was a lot of additional technologies that, that came with that. And so we repurposed even our, our CT scanners that we had at our facility. We were scanning core within their uh, subsurface core, rock core and uh, looking at uh, petrophysical properties and how we derive uh, information out of these for, for exploration and production. What we did find out is uh, we, actually, we actually have an inspection business that is in the manufacturing. So they build robotics, they, they, do, um, they look in uh, uh, confined spaces uh, for, for visual inspection, uh, but we, we we repurposed our, our CT scanners, uh, scanning electronics, scanning uh, uh, car parts, and some of our biggest clients are automobile manufacturers, uh, electronics uh, manufacturers, and we we implement computer vision for automated defect recognition. So these are uh, our advanced analytics and computer vision team where they're actually looking at uh, advanced inspection technologies uh, using some of our existing technology as well. So we get to, to dive into different emerging markets, look at how we can innovate our technology and bring it into to new industries as well outside of oil and gas. That is, it's fascinating to think about CT scanners that say when, when we first met 12 years ago, I felt like that was the cutting edge of trying to understand the rock properties, the permeability and porosity and, and what those individual mineral, mineral interactions are. Whereas now it, it feels like it is something that, that pretty much if you have the money, you, you do some CT scans of your cores, if you get them and the, the other aspect that that's coming from from the medical industry and now what i think is so cool is is how you you and and your team are applying ct scans beyond where we were using them in course now you're putting that into practice 
for I I see applications where you said you're you're scanning all the different parts in manufacturing. This could also be an opportunity to be scanning all of those edge devices and all of the different components before we as as the energy industry put those out into the field so that way we we limit the the amount of maintenance and the amount of lemons that that ultimately cause more back and forth and more more um what's the word I'm looking for more downtime yeah no I mean that's exactly what we're doing it's not just uh um, our our uh, equipment. We're we're actually sell this as a service to some of the large uh, automobile manufacturers. Yeah. Um, you, you you can go to BakerHughes.com, uh, look at our technologies there. Um, not putting a shameless plug in or anything, <laughs> but uh, there there's even uh, YouTube videos where we go in depth of of our technology for EV vehicle inspection. So, so we're actively doing this. These are, these are commercial things um, and, and products that are out there in the market today that where we're helping customers, um, you know, EV vehicles, right? That's something that, that people don't associate Baker Hughes. The cool thing is now, instead of having the CT scanner, you can train um, computer vision algorithms, right? To look at where are these defects and to your point mm-hmm. so that you're not putting a, a a new battery into a vehicle, you know, some guy purchases it, off he goes, and like you said, it's a lemon, right? So it's getting early in that manufacturing stage, advancing our manufacturing capabilities as well uh, to enable that supply chain. So, so we're we're uh, at the forefront, uh, our group uh, at the Innovation Center too, in computer vision and how we're applying this, um, and that that's definitely a fascinating. Um, uh, application of, of technologies and uh, e- even even a, another interesting technology talking to some folks last night and, and people don't really think about it is uh, additive manufacturing so that that's another center uh, I'd say a sister facility that we work with closely down in Houston with our additive manufacturing uh, technology center um, but again you can it, it's a it's a another disruptive technology um, that, I, that I continue to learn and think about, but that, that I, I feel like it's something that people don't necessarily um, uh, think about on a daily basis or, you know, maybe it's a little bit too space age still today, but, uh, you know, I, I even read something yesterday that they're thinking of, of 3D printing uh, wind turbines on site, so the base of these, so you don't have to ship them down the road, so I think... Uh, yeah, from an emission standpoint, um, the more we can optimize processes through digital, computer vision, AI, ML, computing, um, you know, there, there's still a, a big thrust there um, when it comes to the overall uh, energy transition. Yeah, there, and correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> excuse me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Baker Hughes was one of the geothermal additive manufacturing prize finalists. I can't remember if they, if that's all over now or if there's still one more round to go. Yeah, there's still one more round and we made it to the, the final round. So hopefully we win and, and are a finalist. So we made it progress through. Um, our, our group uh, is a, a, a part of that one and that's a, uh, a very collaborative thing across uh, Baker Hughes. So um, just, just like big companies, lots of different people. So the I think the the beauty almost is how we kind of come together as uh, different people and different groups to kind of go after this prize. So I think that was the maybe the most valuable piece is uh, working a- across our 
our company. But yeah, we have folks uh, within our, our packer business who do the modeling and simulation and design of our overall packer elements. Um, we have the additive manufacturing team, and then our team kind of came up with the idea of, hey, this, this came through, this is very interesting, I think we can kind of get everybody here, uh, put it together, so a, a little bit of maybe cat herding too to, to kind of get us all moving forward on this. But yeah, that, that one is a, a very uh, good example of where additive is at play in our, our packer elements because um, it really enhances uh, uh, the deployment and um, Again, kind of going back to lemons, you know, you don't want a, a packer to fail downhole. Um, it, it causes a lot of issues. So this is really giving more reliability in the packers for geothermal-based applications. Um, but the the element that expands um, has a unique capability than than uh, regular manufacturing. We're able to to develop kind of a more deployable, higher expansion rate, uh, almost like a we call it flower petal design that. Um, uh, that we discuss about, so hmm. it's it's a it's a great opportunity to add redesign elements um, into existing products as well, uh, so that the overall reliability of them is a little bit higher. Um, and uh, yeah, we we can move move things forward like you know geothermal technology again. Uh, the, this is a critical element to to keep the cost down. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's. It's really cool to think about how you can you can bring together a large team as as you said herding cats, but I think that for for the future that is such a key element of being able to make being able to make renewable energy and ESG monitoring and and all of these different different components that we need for ultimate full decarbonization and kind of reaching net zero goals and it it's it's almost very it's very exciting to hear the the way that Baker Hughes is thinking about it and and the way y'all are approaching it because it it is it's almost like putting the people first you see what is happening and you are saying okay we are going to find a way to be part of the future of energy we're not going to go the way of the dinosaurs and go the way of the eventually the 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 oil and gas industry and be a a niche market we want to be part of the mainstream energy market yeah and i mean oil and gas is going to be around for a while it's it's definitely still a core business for us um I, there's just a lot of opportunity to um improve our uh customers emissions um how we how we monitor and mitigate um, is is very uh, a key there, um, and so I think um, you know we we have that opportunity. We have opportunities in the oil and gas industry to optimize and improve efficiencies. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of value there, and then also um, you know electrification opportunities. So we we sell gas turbines as well. So how do we start to utilize gas on site, um, combust it, and, and electrify things using uh, using the existing gas? So there's a lot of opportunities not in in the oil and gas industry, but definitely we also see the the emergence of hydrogen and carbon capture sequestration, um, and have uh, have uh, maybe um, growth growth based opportunities in, in several of our businesses as well, where our technology definitely plays a key role there. Uh, so it's it's very exciting. Um, so yeah, I I get the opportunity to to kind of 
dabble on all sorts of different things. It, you know, my day can be from a uh, looking at oil and gas uh, to the next day. It might be some nuclear-based things that uh, we have capabilities when it comes to controls and sensors. Uh, and then we, you know, we've been in hydropower for 60 years too. So with our wow. our gear-based uh, solutions out of out of uh, Lufkin Gears and Nexus Controls and the control base. So um, again, it's uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of different products that uh, touch in adjacent businesses uh, and, and emerging side of things. And e- even even the wind industry, we we have uh, uh, condition-based monitoring uh, technology out of mm-hmm. Bentley, Nevada. So. Um, we're, we, we have a lot of sensing, um, sensing and monitoring capabilities as well that definitely is uh, more on the, the emerging energy space. Yeah, and, and to, to go on that point a little bit more, I think the last three times we've seen each other were, were at conferences. The first one being the Geothermal Rising Conference, so geothermal. The next one was Sarah Week, which is kind of all energy. And then now here you are at this energy ESG conference and your section or the session that you'll be speaking in the edge, how technology is responding to ESG demands. What, as, as we talk about all these different aspects of what you do, what, what exactly are you going to be talking about today? And, and how does that wrap into that kind of everyday work that you do? Yeah, I think we'll, you know, touch on a lot of things that we're probably discussing um, already. I think digital, again, is a very uh, key theme. Um, you know, jo- joking aside, it was, you know, digital was the the term of the last decade and the new decade is energy transition. But I think they're very much hand in hand. And I think we we don't want to forget that because, uh, yeah, you know, you, you think about hydrogen and hydrogen facilities and carbon capture facilities. Uh, the permitting and, and different things, the, the, those are going to still take time for, for those uh, uh, larger um, commercial projects to kind of come to fruition here in the next maybe five, six, seven years. Um, but I think the still the next five, six years, uh, digital is going to be a very key player um, in how we uh, deploy technology. And, uh, you know, I think the advantage we also have, too, around digital is... Um, you know, as we get into these uh, new emerging spaces, we should be able to learn quickly and iterate quickly. Um, you know, going if, if you think about the oil and gas industry, it's been around for 100 years. Mm-hmm. No one was gathering data, right? Now we're kind of at the opportunity of we should be able to innovate really quickly um, around hydrogen, carbon capture, sequestration. So I hope that's really the case. Um, and then it's, you know, because not not... There's not a lot of it out there today, um, so I think gathering data uh, intelligently, maybe spending an extra uh, time and effort to, to make sure you have a good data plan um, and how you start to, to make actionable insights out of that, I think will be, be pretty critical. Yeah, and that idea of the fact that we are at the beginning of a lot of these markets, even though, say, hydrogen has probably, it has been around for a while, but it is still, so it's still a nascent industry and still a small industry. So being able to plan a, a data collection uh, scheme and being able to understand what you're looking for, I think is so important. And then also from that aspect of, of 
how quickly we're going to be able to learn and respond. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I've, I've been made aware of simply by the electric, the electric grid, not only here in Texas and, and some of its recent failures, mm-hmm. but also thinking about the, the larger energy grid and looking at things like the California duck curve, where we have a significant ramp up and it's more or less predictable, but we, we have to really plan and schedule and predict energy demand versus energy load on a sometimes, at least in Texas, you, you bid on a 15 minute interval. Mm -hmm. So you really need to be knowing what's coming and knowing what is on the grid and all of that, as you point out, that's all digital. That's Mm -hmm. all right now, predictive analytics and AI and machine learning will ultimately facilitate and, and simplify those processes for us. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's absolutely true, and I, I, I wanted to make another point too. I think um, you know there's really been a boost in uh, at several universities, right? Data science is a, a key um, uh, uh, degree and focus now. Uh, if if you think about again, 12 years ago when we were at in the the geothermal community. You know, there there weren't a whole lot of us. You could probably, uh, yep. you know, <laughs> you, you knew kind of everybody that played in that space, right? Um, and so I think I think education on you know geothermal, hydrogen, carbon capture, sequestration that that that's still um, a necessary need. And I I, I think it's um, I know there's there's going to be a focus on the future too at, at several universities um, to to educate the the next generations as well in this, but. Uh, I, I hope there's not a bottleneck or a learning curve too. I think people are going to have to to realize that uh, as all these companies uh, want to focus on everything here, there's there's almost like a limited pool of experts too, probably right. So uh, um, you know they they may tab somebody. There's going to be a, a large uh, education. Um, obviously, conferences like I'm at today is is why people come to to keep learning and understanding what's out there. Um, but I think again, education is going to be pretty key too. Uh, um, you know, geothermal programs, carbon capture sequestration programs, and, and how people start to focus on that is also a, um, a thing that's going to be needed. Mm-hmm. On that point, do you think it is easier to teach a geologist data science or a data science geology? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a hard question. Uh, <laughs> it's... Yeah, I mean, I probably tried to, to, to tell people what geology is. You know, sometimes people still think there's like this large cavern down there and it's like you, you punch <laughs> a straw and you just suck oil up. And, uh, you know, you, fam, family members, you know, I try to educate them. It's like, no, this is, you know, this is a rock at the surface. This is what it looks like down there. And imagine how you get oil out of these little pores. Um, but yeah, you know, if, if you kind of look at the Big Bang Theory too, it's like, is geology a real science is something they'd always joke about. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's uh, there's a lot of understanding that goes into it, right? And there's uh, a lot of uh, uh, really known unknowns too of what's down there. So um, a data science, <laughs> sometimes some of these data scientists, they, you teach them th- some things about geology, they'll, they'll come up with something and it's like, well, we already know that, or, you know, that, that correlation doesn't make sense. So, um, yeah, I, I think in the end, it's really data science might need to be part of a core curriculum for mm-hmm. geology and the engineering. 
Um, it, it sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult when you get get into some of these in-depth sciences of uh, kind of educating or cross-educating, um, you know, a geology to a uh, to a data scientist. But you know, pe- people are quick learners. Um, I think we're all a little bit different. I would say the same thing for me. I, I probably would struggle more trying to learn data science and um, you know being an advanced programmer. But uh, you know. Same, same thing. So I think it, it really goes back to collaboration, having the right mix in the team, communication, um, and uh, thinking about, you know, how do, how do you get the right individuals in the room to, to make sure you're, you're going back and forth and, and understanding how things are working and working together. Yeah. Yeah. And I, because that was, it's a, it's a fun question and a kind of, in some regards, irrelevant question asking, which uh, it's basically, can you teach an old dog new tricks? But when when you get down to uh, the the core idea, meaning what you want to be looking at in the subsurface, you want to get down to the first principles, and you want to understand the the science and the the really the 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 physics behind it, and what is the what are those those key elements of physics, thermodynamics, just basic science? And then using things like AI and machine learning, we can build upon our understanding of it and make it something that that ultimately makes our our work easier. I think that's the the cool part that I've seen with what you do and and really with what your team does is, taking it down to first principles and and using using experts like yourself in the industry who have a a a basic science degree and using that core knowledge to build out more advanced digital solutions that that half the time when people are talking about machine learning I I can barely keep up half of the half of the different machine learning algorithms I don't understand or can't even pronounce. <laughs> yeah. But the the important part is that we understand the correlations and mm-hmm. being able to see those correlations and then confirming that they make sense from a geologic standpoint right. or from a physical standpoint. It that I think is is the key is having having that that kind of marriage of of science with data. Yep. Yep. And that's really where we're we're headed with with the future of energy, I would say. Yep. No, definitely agree. Well, we are the the conference is going to be starting soon today. So I think we should did you have any other really exciting examples that that you want to talk about? Oh man, I think Every, every day is exciting when I when I get to walk into the building. Um, yeah, we just you, you talk about our team, and you know I I'm I'm really just a part of the team. There there's incredible team across the the organization, um, and how we get to tap into different resources. Uh, so we have you know people around the world that we get to collaborate with. Um, but I think yeah, it's just it it's. It's definitely a, a great opportunity to be at our center um, and and see how we can uh, move energy forward. Um, and uh, you know, the only other thing I kind of want to maybe touch on is the 
the opportunity that we have. We we actually donated our building a couple of years ago. We we still um, are a tenant in there uh, to Oklahoma State University, and so we get this unique opportunity to really collaborate with the university as well on uh, you know big ideas. How do we uh, um, you know fund research for them or collaborate on uh, government-based projects as well? Uh, so so we're in the same building. Um, you know, there's there's things that that they do. They're rich in agriculture. They're a very good agricultural school, um, and they they have emissions challenges, right? Too, and, and we yeah. have technologies. We we have again sensing capabilities. We have analytics capabilities. We're already monitoring emissions. So, how do we start to take these things and move into uh, other industries? So, I think it's just yeah, we we don't have all the expertise either. So, I think it's really our uh, the other fun thing we get to do is we get to go outside of our uh, Baker Hughes network and see how we can collaborate externally, um, and that's kind of a fun opportunity too to to learn and and understand other industries or other technologies. Yep, very cool, and that's always a uh, it's always fun to see that that direct connection to a university, and from the from the aspect of that that multidisciplinary collaborative approach, but also, as you were talking about earlier, having that educational component and, and really teaching and helping along and, and educating the, the future of, of our industry and of the, the, the policymakers and the, the ones who are going to be keeping society going. Mm-hmm. Well, with, with that, I've got a few final questions I ask all my guests. So we'll jump into those now. The first one, what's the most important book you've ever read? Oh, man. You know, I'm not, I'm not a huge reader, so I'm, I'm not going to may, maybe uh, um, think about it too long. Uh, the, I, I read a recent book called Cloud Cuckoo Land. Uh, that, that one was pretty interesting over the past month. Um, so, so that was one that I, that, uh, that I read recently. Um, and and uh, just kind of a an interesting uh, progression through time of of books and history and uh, uh, you know the, the ancient uh, ancient Greece and and the knowledge of how that was passed. So it was it was a cool book. Um, I, I would I would uh, get people to to go out and read that one. Um, it, it was a uh, yeah very very interesting uh, passage through time from the early uh, medieval times all the way into the future of of really climate change and uh, huh. you know what what people think is going to impact and and how uh, and how uh, if we kind of go back to the basics of, of reading and knowledge and uh, um, how that get how that's one thing that just kind of sustains time is uh, books and uh, huh. and uh, the next generation. All right, cuckoo land. The next question: When will we be net zero as a society? Yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball on that one. Um, you know, everyone's making these uh, strategies by by 2050, and uh, you know, I, I hope hope we can get get there um, by by that time frame. I, I think it's interesting because we we think about um, you know, co- COVID was something that impacted us all re- really really quickly. And uh, it's it's an immediate thing that we see in our lives, and uh, climate change is one of those things that 
that is slowly um, moving, right? And it's not like there's one single event that just kind of impacts the rest of the world like something like COVID did. Um, so how we respond is a little bit slower, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's where we are right now. Um, I, th- I think we're, you know, confident that we'll we'll get there by by the 2050 timeframe. If not, uh, I think there's going to be, again, some some sort of technology disruption, um, or um, you know, some greater investments here to to probably accelerate that. So, I'll, I'll stick with the 2050 timeline for now that everyone's kind of uh, uh, putting forth. But um, it's going to take all of us to get there. Yep, yep, it's going to take all of us. And pointing out the impact that COVID had on all of us. That's something people haven't brought up, especially from a from a CO2 perspective and from an emissions perspective, because the everybody thinks about it from the negative standpoint of if there was this massive decrease in emissions for that period of time, and we saw a significant change. But with that, there was no traveling and there was no there was very little going out to eat and restaurants and socialization. But I think we could also think about it from, so the the globalization aspect was kind of shut off. Whereas the localized aspect of, in my neighborhood, people would have, they would have happy hours in their yards with with their, their block. Mm-hmm. So there would be this big circle, almost like a bonfire circle of chairs and everybody not touching, staying six feet apart, but being able to interact and socialize. Mm-hmm. And frankly, before that, I didn't know any of my neighbors. Yeah. And this is an, a, a weird dichotomy of, there are those obvious negatives of the missing globalization, but now also the, the, the hyper-localization of your social network and of the people you interact with. And forcing you to get out and walk in and experience your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I think it. There's a lot more to be said on that, and that obviously is not not the goal here. But I think it is the the goal of the question is to make people think about about these things. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's important to think about what the past two years have done to us mm-hmm. from a CO2 perspective, from a COVID perspective, from our socialization, and. What do we do with that? How do we wrestle with that? The, the last question, I'll get off the soapbox now. Now is your opportunity to ask me a question. Hmm, let, let me think about that one for a while. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, something I like, like to ask is, you know, there's, you know, net zero 2050, but it's, it seems like there's going to be a winner of something out there, right? If if you had to pick a winner and, and put put a all-in bet on something uh, when it comes to one of these emerging uh, carbon mitigation or or a new uh, um, you know a new energy solution, what are you kind of thinking? Um, maybe, maybe don't be too biased on the geothermal <laughs> side, uh, and, and uh, if if that is you know what's the next one, but. Yeah. Um, you know, what are, what are you kind of thinking if you had to put your, your chips all in on something, where would you put it? Yeah, and I think, I mean, you hit the nail on the head saying geothermal, that obviously there is a, a bit of a bias there because that is my, my focus and I'm all in on geothermal. But 
the one thing that so the geothermal gives us that baseload electricity that can be the foundational part of the electricity grid, but that still makes it it doesn't fully fill the gap of transportation. We're not going to be able to f- <coughs> excuse me. We're not going to be able to fly planes using geothermal. I I I would be amazed if we ever think we can fly planes using batteries. Mm-hmm. That would be I don't see, I can't compute how that will ever work. And maybe it will, but I can't figure it out. Uh, unless we make green, hyd- or green hydrogen out of geothermal, right? Exactly. Or, or a couple so, direct air capture with geothermal. I think there's uh, this ecosystem yeah. that geothermal has to be yeah. part of. Yeah, so geothermal will be part of an ecosystem that ultimately drives some type of green fuel for transportation. I think that is how geothermal can can i guess you can convert those electrons into something that is energy dense enough to get us across an ocean but with that point there needs to be that other technology that that can make something like hydrogen electrolyzation easier mm-hmm. and cheaper mm-hmm. and there needs to be something that that can make an energy energy dense fuel source that can take you from New York to LA on on the equivalent of a gas engine. Mm-hmm. So two or three tanks of gas depending on how fuel efficient your car is. Yeah. And I think that is that's the other aspect. So so to sum that up, there isn't going to be a single winner, but if I had to pick the top 3, I would say geothermal some type of green fuel whether that's hydrogen or or maybe many people are talking about just burning ammonia mm-hmm. green ammonia i think that is interesting but i know nothing about it <laughs> and then and then green mining if there's because we're going to need steel we're going to need lithium whatever company figures out green mining first mm-hmm. i think is going to be ahead of the pack and that again may be a combination of four or five different technologies yeah well you get to t- you get to talk to so many uh different people on the podcast so you know i think that's yeah. a a good opportunity to learn what what you're hearing as well yeah there's there are just so many different things and i i, I think it's so hard to pick because it is it is such a all of the above solution. A few weeks ago, I had a company on who who builds distributed energy resource management systems, and that is their their core business, one of their core businesses. But that's a technology that is absolutely necessary for the future. Mm-hmm. So, are they going to be a winner? Yes, but does a winner look like being? the next Tesla or does a winner look like being a, a consistent solid business that nobody thinks about? Like right. I'm sure Chase Bank would be a great investment or Coca-Cola, probably a great investment. Right. I don't know. This is not investment advice, but I don't think about investing in those. Yeah. Whereas a, an electric utility, we're all going to keep using electricity. Right. That is an obvious, yeah, you should, you should go that way. They're going to be a winner, but 
does that mean they're going to go from zero to a thousand? Yeah. Or are they going to go from zero to a hundred guaranteed? Yeah. So it's a, it's a tough question. Something to think <laughs> about. Well, before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say, Rob? No, this has been great. Um, thanks for the opportunity and, uh, you know, always good seeing you too. And looking forward to, to all the feedback from the listeners out there. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you again for joining me on the show. It's always a pleasure. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.